Turn with me, if you will, back in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you were here with us last time, you know I didn't quite finish what I wanted to share from last Lord's Day, and I want to continue this idea of the implications of the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 11, says this, Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Last Lord's Day, I mentioned to you that there were three times in this passage of Scripture a very clear command, an expectation, an indication that you and I are different from the world. And because we're different from the world... There are imperatives, commands, principles that you and I operate by that the world does not operate. They don't, they don't do what we do. They don't think the way we think. And the way the Apostle Paul speaks of them is a grand metaphor that we'll be talking about later on in the message this morning, and that is the metaphor of darkness and light darkness and light. It's really not just even from an Old Testament perspective, but I would say even uh, especially pregnant with meaning in the New Testament because of our being New Covenant Christians and the idea of darkness and life being, light being mentioned so many times in the New Testament. It is a major theme, I would say. Now, we're going to talk about some passages that sort of bore down or bore into this idea of the metaphor of darkness and light. But the way Paul uses it here is most interesting because what he's talking about is in the context of what I've referred to already this morning, and that is the day of the Lord, the terrible, awful, ghastly day of the Lord. Now, there are, there are many positive aspects to one part of the day of the Lord. And that's the part in which the day people receive their resurrection and reward. That's going to be a glorious time. That's going to be a time for which you and I are going to be so very happy. But there is also, for the people of the darkness, going to be a time very much like, unlike us, the people of the day. The people of the darkness will find the darkness very foreboding. The darkness being for them a time of judgment, a time of a comeuppance, a time of recompense. 
And it's because they are people of the night, people of the darkness. They're asleep at the wheel, we might say. They don't understand Christ. They don't understand the gospel. And what's worse, they don't even care to do so. They think we're strange. And in a sense, we are. We're strangers. The Bible says we're aliens. It's like the old hymn, speaking of great hymns of the faith, uh, this world is not my home. We're just a passing through. We're sojourners. We're people of the day, not people of the night. We're children of light, not children of the darkness. And Paul sort of gathers up that metaphor, and he does so by wanting to contrast the day people and the night people, the light people and the darkness people. And we studied that in some detail last time, and I want to remind you of it because one of these imperatives, uh, one of these principles that we talked about is that Christians must always strive to be awake, to be awake. I mean, he's using the metaphor here of uh, sleep and nighttime and being awake and uh, working in the light of day. I mean, it's very, very clear what he's, what he's talking about here, what he's pushing toward, uh, what he's trying to define, and as I said, what he's also trying to contrast. And here's what he says in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, but you, referring to the Thessalonian believers, and of course by extension, all of us who are true believers, even believers like us in the 21st century, but you are not in the darkness. Brothers, brothers and sisters, for that day, the day of the Lord, the day of that recompense, that day of judgment, that day, that awful day that will surprise the unsuspecting, the world, the people of the darkness like a thief. He says, but that's not you. You're not in the darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light. That means everybody who is genuinely a child of light are a part of all that means being children of light. He says, we are not of the night or of the darkness. We're not unbelievers. We believe in Christ. We have hope in the resurrection of the dead. We have the hope of the very resurrected Christ coming. And yes, judging the world, but also resurrecting us, our bodies, to be joined with our spirits. And for those who are living at the time of the coming of Christ, for them to be translated and metamorphosized in their bodies, to be joined with uh, their spirits in a kind of glorified apparatus that I can't even describe but will one day actually experience. And so will you. So whether you're resurrected from the dead as a believer in Christ or or you're raptured immediately, not tasting death, but actually having this, uh, this translation of your sinful body being wiped clean of all sin and joined with a just or righteous soul to meet the Lord in the air. And to meet him in the air and then to watch while we're safe the most hellish, the most judgment, the most darkness of all darknesses when Jesus Christ comes to the earth to judge those who are the nighttime people. And Paul says here, how do you see such a person in the here and now? And I would say it like this, how do you see yourself? How do you see this change, this difference, this contrast between the people of the light and the people of the night? How do you see it? How do you you tell How do you tell who are the light people and the dark people? How do you tell the people of the day and the people of the night? How do you you distinguish them? 
Well, Paul says, first and foremost, you distinguish them because the people of the light do not sleep, which means spiritual sluggishness. In fact, no spiritual life at all. No salvation. No Christianity. No sins forgiven. So let us not sleep as others do. Others do meaning unbelievers. The outside world. The the unrighteous. The unholy. They sleep. That means they don't care about doing the right things by living the right way. They'll live any old way they want to, and you can't tell them anything different, and they're not going to certainly live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, They're asleep at the wheel. Uh, the, the, the spiritual automobile of their life is careening over the cliff, and they're completely insensitive to what's going to happen in the day of the Lord. And as I said, what's worse, they couldn't care less. They're asleep at the wheel. And Paul says, I'll tell you how to contrast those kinds of people with the people of the day, the day people, the people who are saved, the people who are holy, the people who are sensitive to their sin, the people who have asked Christ to forgive them of their sins. I'll tell you what they do. Here's what Paul says, let us keep awake and be sober. Keep awake. You know, it's not enough for people to say, well, I'm saved. I know the Lord. But if you're asking me about the hard demands of Jesus, His Lordship, if you're asking me to stay awake behind the spiritual automobile of my life, uh, to watch for all of the twisting turns of the trials and tests of life, hey, that's too hard. That takes a lot of work. There's a, there, there's, a, there's a lot to do. So are you saying, Paul, that there's not only salvation, but there's this sanctification that you seemingly talk about all the time, that, that there's the idea of saying no to your sin and, and saying no to the temptation to sin and, and to, to, to kill sin? like Colossians 3, 1 to 5, to to say no to it, to fight against it, to fight against Satan and the world. Is that what all is bound up in let us keep awake and be sober? You bet it is. And for anybody who says that salvation is, is really just something like fire insurance, to get out of hell free card, you tell them, you're not reading the New Testament. Because the New Testament is talking about believers who are not asleep at the spiritual wheel, but believers who are very, very alert. They're awake. They're watching for all those twists and turns. They they don't want to be asleep at the wheel and getting in the trials and tests and temptations of accidents, spiritually speaking, so as to be harmed in such ways that the Lord is getting our attention really quickly. That's what he means here. Stay awake. Be awake. Then he says, for those who sleep, those in the darkness, unbelievers, they they sleep at night and, and they also drink. They get drunk at night. That's a It's another kind of metaphor. It's the idea that someone in the drinking of their spiritual life or so they assume, and you and I know that they have no spiritual life, and so they they push all spiritual life, all thoughts and talk about God and Christ and the Bible and salvation and and what it means uh, to live a crucified life and following the Lordship of Christ. And they say, I'm not going to have anything to do with that. Don't talk to me about spiritual life. Or maybe they'll even say something like this. Well, look, I'm not a Christian, but I am spiritual. You ever heard that? You know, the idea that 
I, I just want to have a, a kind of spirituality that's of my own design, of my own making. You know, that's tantamount to saying, I shall be my own God. I shall follow my own path because I'm in charge. I'm the captain of my destiny. I, I choose what is true and what is false, what is good, what is bad, what I'll do in life and what I won't. And Paul says, yeah, well, that just shows that you, you're asleep. You're spiritually dead. And then he goes to the metaphor of drunkenness. You don't have any ability because of your drunkenness in the nighttime watches to understand the day of the Lord when it comes. And it's going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to come when the drinking people are drunken and they have no ability to discern what's happening. So you've got to stay awake. Number two that we talked about last time, and that is Christians must always strive to be aware. To be aware. Not just awake, but also aware. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10. But since we belong to the day, look at the contrast there, but but since we belong to the day, not the drunken nighttime people, not the people who are asleep at the wheel, but since we belong to the day, we're in the light of day, uh, the day where you can see most clearly, let us be sober. And that's the second time he mentioned being sober, right? Verse 6, verse 8. Let us be awake and be sober. And now he says, let us be sober. And you remember what I did? I, I used that illustration of the sobriety checkpoint. Do you remember that? Let's call it the spiritual sobriety checkpoint. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying every one of us, every day of our life, every hour of such a day of our life in the everyday lives that we live, we are often going through the, the spiritual sobriety checkpoints of our life. It's every day. What do, you, what do you watch? What do you think about? What do you read? Who do you listen to? How do you think? How do you make choices? What kind of choices do you make? How do, you, how do you discern between good and evil? How much spiritual impact, how much biblical intake do you have in your life? You remember I said last time, stop watching all of the negative news reports about every last thing in the world and put your head in this book, our Bible. Because you can't be ready to watch that stuff unless you're already watching and imbibing this stuff. To arm you, to protect you, to give you discernment so that you are saying, I'm aware of what's going on. Yes, I'm aware. I, I'm, not a, I'm, not a, I'm not a spiritual ostrich who's got my head in the sand. I know what's going on. I see it. I'm aware of it. In, in our day and age, how can someone not be aware of things with social media? which is mostly, this social media, mostly not true. doesn't square with reality. And even when it does, it's mostly negative. And I would like, and I'm sure you would too, to be mostly positive. Even in the midst of the negative. And Paul says... But since we belong to the day, verse 8, let's be sober. You're at the spiritual sobriety checkpoint. And, and if you go there, how are you going to defend yourself against all the accusations of the world, all of the, the darts of the evil one? Here's how you do it. Because you're so sober, you're so aware, and it's because you have put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. That's how you arm yourself every time you're stopped at the spiritual sobriety checkpoint. Faith, love, and hope. That's, that's how you arm yourself. Do you see that, that armor language there? The breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet? This is, this is 
what Paul says in so many of his epistles, and here he says it in 1 Thessalonians, and that is we're in a spiritual war. We're in a spiritual battle. And you better have the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. And then here's probably the most encouraging part of this passage, and I said it last time, it ought to be sort of a memory verse for you, and it is this, for, here's the explanation, for God has not destined or elected or chosen us for what? Wrath. Now, in the context, that's not some, uh, some temporary wrath. That's not referring to... Uh, something that uh, God is going to do to sort of wrap your spiritual knuckles because you made a sinful mistake. That's, that's not what he's talking about. In the context of the day of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 to 11, what might wrath mean here? The day of wrath. The ultimate day of wrath. The, the absolute wrath of a day, a time, a season... I think in the context here, and when you put all the other passages together, a seven-year period, and particularly the latter half of three and a half years of a kind of wrath that is more than any other wrath that's ever come upon the world or shall be. That's the wrath. It's probably like this, capital W-R-A-T-H. The wrath. The day. And what does it say about us? Day people, light people, what does it say about us? God has not chosen us for it. Any hallelujahs out there? God has not destined, chosen, elected us, believers, the day people, the light people, for wrath, but to obtain. That's not by your works. That's not you obtaining it. Salvation is by grace through faith, plus or minus nothing, to obtain. That's, that's to receive it, to, to to gain it, not for what you do, but for what Christ did on the cross. And, and Paul tells us that exactly. But to obtain salvation through, through the instrumental means of our Lord Jesus Christ, what he did. And what did he do? He lived a righteous life. He died an ignominious death on a cross, the most the most fantastic in the worst sense of that word, the most fantastic way to die in that culture on a cross, bleeding to death and being asphyxiated by your own body's weight so that you languish there for hours or perhaps even days until you breathe your last. And that's what he did. He died on that cross and then he went to that tomb and when they placed him there, they locked it up so no one could take him, and in three days he rose again. Who died for us. Who died for us. So that, for the purpose that, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Now that awake or asleep there, don't be confused, whether we are dead or alive. That's what it means whether we're dead or alive, whether you're dead in Christ like those in chapter 4 who had died before the coming of Christ, and Paul says they'll be resurrected first. You don't have to worry about them. And then those who are alive. We who are alive when Christ comes back, if he comes back today, you and I would be alive for the coming of the day of Christ, and that day will be to rescue us from the wrath to come. We'll be rescued. So whether we are dead or alive in Jesus Christ, we might live with him. Live with him in the sense of his glorious death and burial and resurrection, his glorious coming, his glorious kingship, his glorious kingdom, and we will live with him. That's, that's so fantastic. And I told you about this, this metaphor of this light and darkness. And here's why I want you to write some of these passages down. Because this concept of light and darkness, we're the day people, they're the night people, we're of the light, they're of the darkness. This is a major theme. 
This is a major metaphor that sort of runs through the New Testament. Jesus speaks of it. The apostles speak of it. Those associated with the apostles, other New Testament writers, they speak of it. And I want you to see this. Turn in your Bibles over to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 26. And I want you to note every time this metaphor is used as I read these passages to you and how by the very use of these metaphors, light and darkness, it describes you and me and it describes the world of unbelief. They're the darkness people, we're the light people. And notice how many times this is mentioned and how important this is. This is Paul's testimony in Acts chapter 26. He's, he's standing uh, before uh, Agrippa, the king, and he's giving his testimony. He's a bold man, Paul. And he's, he's talking to O King Agrippa. We know that from verse 19. And if you look at verse 12, it says this, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus, he's giving his testimony now, with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. Now that's a literal use of the word light. That was a, that was a light that Paul saw. It shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground... I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? That means uh, uh, you're, you're, you're sort of very uncomfortable when you get poked. Verse 15, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am whom? Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you. Now Jesus is going to give Paul in this vision, a calling. This is Paul's call to the ministry. He says, rise, stand on your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose. And now this is the calling, and this is the purpose for the calling, to appoint you as a servant, a slave, and a witness to the things in which you have seen me, uh, in, in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people, that's the Jews, and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes. Here it is, folks, verse 18, so that they may turn from darkness to light, darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. From darkness to light. From not being able to see spiritually to the ability to see spiritually. And you know what's so interesting is that when Paul was on that Damascus road and when he was thrown down on that road and when he was talking to Jesus who was appearing before him in that brilliant bright light, what happened to Paul's eyes? He was blinded. Some kind of uh, scales were on his eyes. We, we might say God was showing him an object lesson with spiritual cataracts. And for a couple of days, right? Until Ananias was dispatched to go and talk to Paul and say, you've got to be baptized and you've got to start to work with your calling. And what's Paul's calling? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. That's our calling. That's what we do. That's, we're, we're, we're daytime people. We tell people how to get out of the darkness. They've got... They've got dark eyes. They can't see. They're blind. They're blind to the truth. Look at, look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1. If you, if you trace the darkness and light themes in these passages, you would say to yourself, this is a major teaching of the New Testament. John chapter 1, verse 5. Even backing up to verse 4, in him, speaking of the Lord Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or overwhelmed it. 
And that's the first place in John's gospel where the idea of light, this, this metaphor of, of the ever-increasing ability to see into the dark souls of human beings with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And John loves this metaphor. Look at John chapter 8. John chapter 8. This is one of those seven I am sayings in John's gospel. And in John 8, 12, the Bible says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the what? The light of the world. He's not saying I'm a literal light. He's saying I'm the light of life. I create life by allowing the darkness to be penetrated by the light. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So he's the, he's the light. And of course, you just have to go one chapter in John chapter 9, and what do you have? You have the story of the blind man. And what is that a metaphor? The whole chapter. Now, he was literally blind, but when Jesus, when Jesus healed him, and he could see, then what does that stand for? The light of Jesus Christ being shown into his dark heart so that he would be forgiven of his sin. That's John chapter 9. Look at verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is what? Day. Night is coming when no one can work. See how the metaphor is being filled out and elucidated and expanded upon? Hey, look, you and I, we've got to get to work here because it's daytime. And there'll be a day when it becomes night where no man can work. No more witnessing. No more, no, no more calling out to family members, friends, neighbors. It'd be too late then. So you've got to get to work. You've you, you got to shine the light. You've got to talk about the Lord. No wonder Jesus says in verse 5 here, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. says it again. I'm the light of the world. And then look over at John chapter 12. I mean, John can't stop talking about light and darkness. Remember, I read you John chapter 3 where he talks, he talks about darkness, and he says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Look at what he says in chapter 12. Look at verse 35, John 12, 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Do you see where Paul is picking up his metaphor about darkness and light? From the teaching of Jesus himself. You've got you to get in the light. Look at verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. This is major truth. Think about all of the people around you who live in such darkness. They're dark. They're blind. They're naked. They don't know the Lord. They need to hear from someone who's a son of light. Hey, if I told you how you could have all your sins forgiven, would you be interested in talking? Is that a great evangelistic question? You say, yeah, until the person says, you're not going to talk to me about that, about that Jesus fellow, are you? As a matter of fact, I was. He's said to be the light of the world. I don't want to talk to you at all. I'm sad about that. 
Because if you don't come to the light of life, you shall remain in the darkness. And guess what? Perhaps God's been working on the heart of that soul. And they say, you know, I've rethought that. Could you, could you expand on what this light and darkness is? What do, what do you mean? What, do you, what are you talking about? This is, this is the metaphor of what happens when conversion occurs. Look in your Bibles at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And my friends, this is tying this whole metaphor not just in our New Testament contexts in our Bibles, but also back to the very creation of the world itself. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, this is that creation account, this is Genesis 1, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that same God has shown in our hearts, the hearts of believers, the, the light people, the day people, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's, that's conversion. That's, that's the regenerative powers of conversion that takes somebody from the realm of darkness and places them into the realm of light. And how does that happen? It's divine. It comes from God. He said, let light shine out of darkness. And he said, I'm putting light in that dark soul right there, right now. So perhaps when you're witnessing to that person and they're saying, tell me more. Tell me more about this light and darkness. Perhaps it is because God in the heart of such a person as you and I witness to them is seeing the regenerative powers like creation. Let light shine out of darkness. Perhaps let light shine out of the darkness of the human heart of that individual. That's regeneration. That's the conversion from darkness to light. 1 Peter chapter 2 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. This is what we should say in our hallelujah and our praise of our heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim, here's our witnessing exploits, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Isn't that wonderful? Light people, day people say yes. They say amen. Because we know from where we've been delivered. Darkness into his marvelous light. Light. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. You say, enough already. I got it. Thank you. Ephesians chapter 5. No, we got to get most, if not all, of this. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, and there will be, of course, even the great day of wrath, the wrath of God. Therefore, do not become partners with them, that is, the dark people, the people of the darkness, the people of the night, verse 8, for at one time you were darkness. Yeah, we sure were. But now you are, and I love this phrase, now you are light in the Lord. Now you're light in the Lord. And then he says, here's the command, walk as children of light. Here's what you are, now live out what you are. Here's what's indicatively true of you, and now imperatively live that way. You're light, you're light in the Lord. Now walk as children of light. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, 
as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You're shining. Shine your light. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 5, shine your light. Be salt and light. Be a city set on the hill. This is, this is light and darkness, my friends. This is the battle. Got to have the breastplate of faith and love on and the helmet, which is the hope of salvation, because it's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual warfare. And Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, and here's why we witness to others, Colossians 1.13, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. From darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. That's that's how you be aware. Be awake, be aware. And as we close this morning, and you'll be so encouraged by this, I hope you will. If not, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Christians must always strive to be active. Awake, aware, and active. Active in doing what? Look at verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians 5. What are you to be active in? I mean, Paul told them, I'm telling you, you're you're not darkness people. You're not drunk at night people. You're light people. You're day people. And I'm telling you about the day of the Lord. And I told you that you're not destined for that, but salvation through Christ, you're going to avoid such wrathful recompense that comes upon the whole world. You're going to be rescued from that. And if you're dead or alive, you're going to live with him. Therefore, verse 11, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I can't tell you. There may be nothing more encouraging and uplifting than that verse in that context. Because you and I have been delivered from the wrath to come. And you know what we're doing in the meantime? We're trying to gather up as many other people as we can so that they too could be delivered from the wrath to come. This is our purpose. This is our calling. This is what we do. And I want to focus for a few minutes on this idea this, this twofold idea, encourage one another and build one another up. Because those are also commands. They're commands. I mean, you got, you got to be awake. And you got to be aware. And you got to be active. It's not just affirming all the truths of the Bible. It's actually affirming them and then actively living them out. And how do you do that? Encourage one another and build one another up. Let's call it encouraging and edifying. You're an encourager and you're an edifier. Oh, I need to do this so much better in my Christian life. Do you? To encourage more people, to build them up rather than discourage them and tear them down. Isn't it so true that we can get sort of locked in to our own zone of our own life and our own challenges and our own trials and we're not always thinking outside of ourselves so as to encourage and build others up. So true. I can get so atomistic about everything that's going on with me and my life and I'm looking forward to everybody coming alongside me and encouraging me and building me up that I forget, oh, wait a minute, that's what I'm supposed to do for them beautiful balance of the body of Christ is that while people are running to me to encourage and edify me, I'm running to them. And we meet in the middle. Hey, I was just going to call you today. I was just going to encourage you in the Lord. So what what does Paul do? You know, the word encourage means to come alongside. That's that paraclete word. That, that's, that means to come alongside, to, to encourage, or, or how about this, to comfort, to comfort one another. Brother, how can I comfort you today? How can I encourage you today? What, what can I do to lift you up? What can I do to, to come alongside you? And, and by the way, if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, 
we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Paul says, I was, I was an example. I sought to encourage you. I sought to lift you up, to, to comfort you. And he says in chapter 4, verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. Encourage them. And no sooner do we get out of this context of chapter 5, verse 11, than he says in verse 14, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted. I mean, he reminds them. That's the fourth time he's, he said it. And he's not even finished. He says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, comfort or encourage your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Encourage, 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 encourage. Why does he say it so often? I submit to you that it's probably because we don't do it as well as we should. So we need the reminders. Encourage, encourage, encourage. And can I close with this? I love that second part of the phrase, edify. Edify. That's, that's another one of those metaphors. What is an edifice? It's a building. It's just another fancy word for, for a building. And what is a building? It's something you put brick and mortar to to raise it up, build it up. Constructed. It, it's the metaphor of a construction term. Edify, build up, don't tear down. Don't tear down. In fact, the Apostle Paul mentions in Romans 13, verses 11 to 14. Listen to this Romans 13, 11 to 14. You look at it later, write it down. Romans 13, 11 to 14. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. In other words, you got to be awake. You got to get up. You got to get busy. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. There's Paul with his metaphors again night and day. So then let us cast off the works of darkness. That's practically speaking. You were in the darkness. You're now in the light. So get rid of everything that tinges of any kind of darkness at all and put on the armor of light. It's a spiritual battle. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and no, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its lusts. I mean, he's using all the same metaphors. And Paul uses this metaphor of edifying the brothers and sisters in the fellowship over and over and over again. You're not going to write these down quick enough, probably not even the references, but listen to this, Romans 14, 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Romans 15, 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. 1 Corinthians 8.1, love builds up. 2 Corinthians 13.10, the Lord has given me, Paul, authority, authority as an apostle, for building up and not tearing down. Ask somebody what your ministry is. Here's my ministry, here's my calling, for building up and not tearing down. You don't have to have seminary degrees for that. You don't have to have vast years of experience in the Christian life to do that. He says, this is my ministry, building up and not tearing down. Ephesians 4.12, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry builds up the body of Christ. It's building it up. It's a big edifice. It's growing and growing and growing into story after story after story, floors after floors after floors of a major manifesto of a, of a beautiful building to the glory of God. Greatest building you've ever seen in your life. Makes the Chicago Tower look like a tent. This is, this is built up. Ephesians 4.16, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 3, you better as a pastor be careful as a wise master builder. And you better not be trying to build with the stuff that gets burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. But you better be using gold and silver and precious stones.
Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Oh, my friends, when's the last time you really focused your heart and life on encouraging one another and building one another up? And if there's one very, very important time to do it, it's right in the throes of the coming day of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, the day of the Lord is coming. It's coming quickly. What are we doing about it? Are we ready? Am I ready? Lance, are you? Are you awake? Are you aware? Are you active in encouraging and edifying fellow believers? And are you pointing unbelievers to the coming day of the Lord? Oh, Father, let us be living out what we say is true of us. We're light people. We're day people. We're not of the darkness. We're not of the night. And because we're filled with light by the gift of God, we come to fellow believers and we encourage and build them up. Just as Paul says, they were doing in Thessalonica, just as you are doing. I just want you to do it more and more and more. They had a lot of reason to be discouraged, suffering, persecution, criticism, death, disease. Lord, we have some similar things today. We have people who reject our message, people who revel in the nighttime drunkenness of not caring about Christ and the gospel and about us. But we redouble our efforts and we say, since I'm a son of light, I need to walk in the light and give out the gospel to those who desperately need it telling them how they can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the marvelous kingdom of light. And may we, as Christians toward other Christians, work so diligently to encourage and edify them. Oh, I pray, Lord, that you would take from me and from those in this fellowship a discouraging tone a disruptive element and that we would be known as people of the light who are encouragers and edifiers may it be so for the glory of our Savior who will come one day the day of the Lord In his name we pray, amen.